Hello, and welcome to Come to Believe, the podcast, a show where we discuss the barriers to college and how we can reinvent higher ed for the better. Hello, and welcome to another episode of Come to Believe, the podcast. Today's episode is a recording of CTB's recent virtual panel, A Smart Investment, Affordability and Value in Higher Ed, recorded on February 28, 2024. CTB's president and CEO, Steve Katsouris, moderates a panel that features New York Times bestselling author Paul Tuff, Butler University President Jim Danko, and the University of Mount St. Vincent President Susan Burns. Paul shares reflections from his recent journalism on changing perceptions of higher education in the United States, and Jim and Susan share their recent institutional commitments to affordability and access, including the announcement of the launch of CTB model colleges at Butler and Mount St. Vincent. We learned a lot from this conversation and we're excited to share it with you. To share a little bit about the Come to Believe Network, which is a nonprofit organization that assists higher education institutions in developing and launching an innovative results oriented to your college model. The CTV model, first developed at Rubik College of Loyola University of Chicago, is a two-year associate degree granting program embedded within four-year college or universities. The model is assigned to provide students with rigorous academics and holistic supports without the burden of high tuition costs or student loans. CTV operates as an accelerator within the higher ed ecosystem. We identify and support post-secondary institutions that can serve as hosts for the CTV model. We will hear more about the CTV model during the panel, but first I would like to introduce our panelists. We are joined today by three special guests. Paul Tuff is a New York Times bestselling author and journalist who recent, whose recent work has focused on higher education. Susan Burns is a president of the University of Mount St. Vincent in the Bronx in New York City. Jim Danko is a president of Butler University in Indianapolis. Paul visited Aruba College multiple times and featured its staff and students in his book, The, Ine the Inequality Machine, noting that Arupe, and I quote, may be doing a more impressive job of keeping its students enrolled and on track for success than any other institution I visited, end quote. Susan and Jim are both leaders and advocates for affordability and accessibility within higher education, and both of their campuses recently announced replications of the CTV model. Student College at Mount St. Vincent will open this fall, and Butler's two-year college will open in the fall of 2025. The panel will be mod moderated by CTV's president and CEO, Steve Katsouris. And just a quick overview of our time together today. First, we'll have Father Katsouris and Paul do a discussion on Paul's recent journalism related to Americans changing views on higher ed. Then Susan and Jim will join the discussion to share what higher education leaders can do to address students' concerns about cost and value. They will also discuss the new CTV model colleges at Mount St. Vincent and Butler, among other topics. Finally, we will have time for audience Q&A. So if you have any questions that come up at any point during the panel, please utilize the Q&A feature to submit them. And with that, I will turn it over to Father Katsouris. Thank you. Oh, it's terrific. Thanks very much for uh, that intro. Good morning, everyone. 
And special thanks to um, Susan, to Jim, and we begin with Paul Tuff. Paul, good morning. Um, several of your morning. books have focused on the topic of social mobility. More recently, and particularly in the inequality machine that Carlos referenced, you've approached social mobility through the lens of higher education. So can you give a sketch for our listeners, just a, a brief history of how higher ed has contributed to or hindered social mobility in our country? Um, well, thank you, Father Katsuras, for, uh, for that question and for the invitation to be here. It's great to see you again. Um, really honored to be a part of this panel. Um, so that's a great question. The, the, the question of, of the, the history of the interaction between social mobility and higher education is an interesting one in this country. Um, you know, 100 years ago, uh, higher education wasn't very much involved in the process of uh, social mobility because very few people went to college and the people who were going to college were mostly, you know, rich, white, Protestant uh, young men from private schools in the Northeast. And so they didn't need any social mobility. Uh, the colleges that they were going to were, were mostly just sort of replicating the, the advantages that they already had. And it mostly wasn't about um, college mostly was sort of a finishing school. It was mostly about um, who you meet, uh, how you're, you know, learning how to eat with the right fork um, and, and be socially refined. And what you would actually learn in class was, uh, was sort of an afterthought. Uh, things started to change in the middle of the century as the, 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 the great sort of push forward in American education happened, um, first in high school in the early part of the 20th century, and then uh, especially after World War II in college, with the, beginning with the GI Bill, there was this big push for working class folks, especially uh, former GIs, to go to college. And this was this, this huge sea change in terms of the relationship between social mobility and higher education. Because the concept of these, you know, children of farmers and factory workers who had fought in World War II going to college seemed crazy to people who were in higher education. These people couldn't possibly want to go to college, but they did in millions. Um, and that began this, this great democratization of higher education that was then accelerated in the 60s and 70s, especially with the growth of uh, public college systems, most notably first in California, but then all over the country, huge investments by state governments in these public systems that were pretty democratic. Um, they would sometimes have different sort of tiers for different um, different levels of education. But the, the idea was we're going to we're going to take the, the masses of uh, this country and give them a good uh, college education, whether that's a two year education or a four year education or beyond. Things started to change, um, I think you would say starting in maybe the 1980s when so many things started to, uh, in this country, began to stratify again and, and measures of inequality began to grow. And that was happening in all sorts of uh, parts of American society, but it was certainly happening in higher education uh, where the, the, the push towards more uh, attendance kept happening. It slowed down a little bit. Um, but two things changed. One is the public's commitment to public higher education began to wane and the big investments that had happened in the, the 50s and 60s uh, and 70s began to tail off. Um, but the other thing that happened was this increased stratification so that there began to be these, these uh, highly selective institutions um, that were uh, many of them the same institutions that those rich kids uh, were going to 100 years ago that again became um, uh, devoted to educating the not just the academic elite, but the, the economic elite as well. And so what has really been happening in the past 20 or 30 years, I think has been a real struggle over the nature of higher education and whether it really is 
meant to be an instrument of social mobility or not. And generally people say now that that, that is what we intend higher education to be. But I would argue that it is much less, uh, uh, in, in reality, it is much less an engine of social mobility than it used to be. And the experience that a lot of the young people um, who I spoke to for, in my reporting, uh, what, what they report is that higher education now feels like the biggest barrier to their social mobility, to their ability to, um, to outdo the, the economic success of their parents and grandparents. So Paul, let's build on that a bit. Um, you know, in your piece in the New York Times, you described this shift in um, our country's views on higher education really in the last 15 years or so. So can you can you tell us a little bit more about this specific shift? Sure. So, yeah. So I said there's there's sort of this this struggle going on in terms of what Americans think about higher education and its role in social mobility. Um, but one of the places you can see that shift is in public opinion polls. And so if you look like 10 years ago, there was this even 10 years ago, and certainly, yeah, as you said, 15 years ago, there was this, this really sort of strong sense among the public that higher education was a force for good um, in the country. Even people who weren't going to college felt good about their, their, their higher education systems, um, admired people who went to college, admired uh, institutions of higher education. And beginning about 10 years ago, that started to shift. And in one public opinion poll after another, you can see this downturn beginning in 2015, 2016, 2017, where um, people just start saying, no matter what, how you ask the question, that higher education is not a, a worthy institution, that a degree isn't worth it, that this isn't what uh, parents want for their children. Um, it, it was you just don't see this kind of this kind of quick shift in in public opinion the way that you do in higher education, and so that continues to today. There's Gallup poll information that came out last summer that shows that uh, Americans of all, all of all generations, but especially younger Americans, have really shifted their feeling about the value of higher education. They're much more skeptical than they used to be. So, all right, part of this shift, I. Th you know, I think would be about affordability. So how does affordability play in these changing views? How should we think about evaluating college as an investment? And Paul, if you would, so last night I was talking about anticipating this with a Jesuit who's in higher ed, and we were talking about, you know, your views on the wage premium versus the wealth premium that higher education offers. Yeah, so so you, you you talk about sort of affordability, um, but I think that's only half for for families who are thinking about higher education. That's only half of the equation, right? So they're they're looking at two things that that I think they that, that American families perceived this shift that was going on uh, more quickly than the, the the higher education establishment and the economists who are studying this. Um, and they perceived it in two ways. So one is they perceived this is a pretty general, generally accepted fact. I think that higher education has gotten more expensive. Um, and there are uh, debates and disputes about how much more expensive it has got. Depends how you measure it. If you look just at the list price of private uh, four-year higher education, prices have gone up really fast. Um, if you look at the, the net price, what students pay after receiving discounts or financial aid, it's gone up less quickly, but it's still gone up uh, faster than the rate of inflation, um, roughly double the rate of inflation over the past uh, couple of decades. Um, so yeah, affordability is a big is a big issue. Um, there, there's there is certainly a range of affordability. Uh, public uh, institutions are still cheaper than private institutions, though the price of public institutions has gone up more quickly than the price of private institutions. 
but uh, American families are not wrong when they sense that uh, it's really hard to afford um, a high quality college education in a, in a way that wasn't true, um, you know, certainly a, a generation or two ago in that period that I was describing when there was this big growth of um, public education, uh, public higher education in the in the 60s and 70s, you know, you could go to, if you were a California student, you could go to the University of California to a, a first rate um, in, a public institution uh, and, and the fees and tuition that you would pay would be more or less what you could earn in two months in the summer in a minimum wage job. So it made sense in a way that it just doesn't make sense now. And, and the other thing that families are uh, perceiving and that economists will tell you as well is that the way that students are paying for this is now not doing minimum wage jobs in the summer, uh, it's through debt. Um, and, uh, and so many more families are going into intense debt in order to pay for those degrees. So that's the affordability side of, of families' calculations. The other side is, what do you get out of this degree? Um, and and so you know, we you as an educator know that part of what you get out of a degree is uh, a love of learning, knowledge about the world, um, uh, uh, civic virtues of all kinds, and those are very important. But what a lot of families are wondering as well is, how much money am I going to make uh, once I get out of college? And and it's hard to blame them for having that be part of their calculations. Um, and what economists are finding is that um, there has been this, this shift, and it's somewhat of a subtle shift in terms of what the, the return on investment is for students when they go to college. So the main way that, that economists have always measured that is through what they call the college wage premium. And it's a very simple calculation. How much more does a college graduate earn than a high school graduate? Um, and right now, the college wage premium is quite high. It's as high as it has ever been. College graduates uh, without any degree beyond a BA are earning about two thirds more than someone who just has a high school diploma. So that that feels like a pretty, pretty good benefit for um, for getting a BA. What's changed is the the sort of the reliability, the variability of that benefit. So a generation or so ago, the that benefit was pretty universal. You go to college, doesn't matter what you study, doesn't matter where you go, you get out, you're going to have this benefit. You're going to be more employable. You're going to have a, a bigger uh, payoff. Now it really depends. It depends on uh, what you study, where you attend, uh, but also sort of who you are. And so for for students, especially from low income families, that benefit is is less pronounced than it is for um, other uh, other students. And, and it's it's especially less pronounced if you don't finish your degree. So about 40 percent of students who start their uh, start a four year degree don't finish it. And students who who start and don't finish and um, go into debt are in real financial trouble. They are on, in general doing less well than someone who didn't go to college at all. So this is stuff that economists have just been figuring out and, and putting numbers on over the last couple of years. And, and the, the, the cumulative total of those two things, the shift in affordability and, and the increased variability of the college wage premium means that um, the, the guarantee that the sort of, the, the good investment of a college, uh, of, a, of going to college is much less certain for families than it used to be. It feels less like, you know, sort of buying a treasury bond and more like going to a casino and taking a real risk. You might do really well, but you might lose your shirt. Okay. All right, so this is our present system. Rising costs, barriers to access, a real shift in the public's notion of ROI. So let's build on this a little bit more. What are the consequences in terms of back to social mobility? What does this mean for 
for for our, our, our society right now and its relationship with higher education. Yeah, so I think it means it means first of all, it means something for for individual families. It means that their calculation is 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 much more complicated than it used to be, um, and then I think their relationship with higher education is much more. Um, much more sort of skeptical and even confrontational and antagonistic than it used to be. They're, they're, I think they're much more in a sort of, you know, you've got to prove yourself to me, prove that you're a good investment than they used to be. Uh, but for the country as a whole, I think there's this, there's this way that, um, that higher education's role as an as an instrument of social mobility is just much less certain and much less guaranteed than it was in the past. And so for individual students, especially individual low-income students, a, a, a high quality college degree is, is still the best uh, possible um, uh, mechanism for getting from one uh, kind of economic situation to another. When a low-income student is able to at a good cost, go to a high quality university and to graduate without a lot of debt. Um, it is a great tool to get them to a very different way of life. Um, and that's something that I think we still need to celebrate and, and try to replicate. But at the same time, higher education as an institution is being much less effective than it used to as an instrument of social mobility for the country as a whole. Uh, and as a, a springboard for, for millions of low income uh, 18 year olds who are looking for uh, a way to improve their lot in life, they are feeling and they're not wrong that higher education is not giving them uh, the, the platform they need, the, the, the pathway that they need to the future that they want. Paul, thank you very much for your observations here. I want to turn this now over to um, our two presidents who are part of today's discussion. Uh, President Jim Danko from uh, Butler, President Susan Burns from uh, the University of Mount St. Vincent. So let's go with uh, uh, Jim Danko first. Jim, the context that Paul provided here about the state of higher education was certainly part of your own thinking at Butler regarding this notion of the $10,000 degree at Butler. So can you tell us a little bit more about that initiative at <clears throat> Butler University? Yeah, sure. And um, appreciate the being invited to join you. And Paul, uh, great observations there. I, th I think one thing that I, I might um, mention is that uh, many of us, many of us, probably the vast majority of us in higher education, we're not oblivious to the issue, right? Um, uh, it, it, the rising cost of tuition, and and I've been at a few different institutions be, besides Butler, and you're always looking at ways to be more efficient and, and more effective, and uh, we don't have to go on and on about the things that are probably imposed on higher education that haven't been in the past, whether it has to do with compliance or legal issues or even athletic programs, quite frankly. But but setting that aside for a moment, uh, even in my own situation or context at Butler University, um, we were founded by an abolitionist in 1855. And you, you talk about democratizing education. Uh, the idea back then was to provide higher education to everyone, regardless, regardless of their background. And um, this, uh, again, within the context of being quite aware 
that people just a mile or two from our campus here in Indianapolis uh, were unable to afford a Butler education, that the cost was going higher as, as much as we also invest a lot, quite frankly, into financial aid, um, it, it still was almost impossible, out of reach for many. And so in 2019, uh, at the end of a academic year where I do an annual address, I I remember having a PowerPoint on and a picture of the moon and moonshot behind me and says, we've got to come up with a way to deliver an education for $10,000. Nothing magical about that number, except it probably occurred to me as I was preparing the PowerPoint. But the, the point I think was made and a lot of people in our university rallied to that and try to figure out how can we, if we really needed to uh, you know, deliver in a more cost-effective way, what would we do? And we went down a number of paths and um, but fortunate enough to uh, intersect with uh, come to believe and see what they were doing there. And that opened up a lot of great ideas and thoughts about, yes, we, we've got to come up with a new pathway separate from our undergrad residential, which is a much more expensive model, uh, a pathway that would work well for people that uh, could not afford the traditional undergrad residential, but indeed would provide them with a high quality education, one with the full support of the university and put them in a position, quite frankly, to succeed in their lives and in their careers. Thank you for that, uh, President Danko, particularly the uh, shout out, if you will, to come to believe uh, it's been great partnering with you and also with the University of Mount St. Vincent. So let's turn now to Mount St. Vincent's president, Susan Burns. Susan, so uh, Mount St. Vincent already successfully serves many students from low wealth backgrounds in the New York City area. And in fact, your university was recently highlighted by the New York Times as a leader in economic mobility. So how do you communicate the value proposition of a degree from the Mount to your students and to their families? So I feel like I need to say that Paul gave our, our value proposition when he said this, the higher education we need to celebrate is an excellent education at an excellent institution at an affordable price. That's really key to what we talk about when we talk about perspectives, talk to prospective students and their families, that they're joining the history of an institution founded by the Sisters of Charity of New York more than 175 years ago, who has committed our history and our current and our future to serving well offering an excellent education that values the whole person that we know is going to change the economic trajectory for that learner, for their family, for the communities in which they're gonna live and serve. And so we have about 50% of our students are, are first generation. We have about half of our students, more than half of our students are Pell eligible. We're Hispanic serving, we're minority serving. We are very representative of the community in which we, we live and serve. And so when we talk to families, this is absolutely the priority that we're talking about excellent education and affordability. Otherwise we, we wouldn't get their attention. And we're competing in a market where there's, there's so many options that are much more expensive that may say they're affordable. Um, and they may not provide those holistic supports that we do when we say in our mission that we're committed to human dignity, common humanity, and our obligations to each other as we walk with those learners along the process to get them to graduation, because we know that that's essential for that economic mobility um, shift, for the social mobility shift. Thank you for that. Back to Paul Tuff. Paul, so in addition to the leadership that Susan Burns and uh, Jim Danko are demonstrating here, what else might higher ed leaders do to promote affordability and change this narrative on higher education's value? 
Well, I think, I mean, I think, so I, I, I agree that everything that both of these presidents is, is uh, doing is exactly what families are looking for. And I, and I think what students need, um, you know, to look at the, at, at the higher education more broadly, not every institution is, is focusing on the same, uh, the same values on the same, and it's sort of taking the same steps, even if they will talk about those values, taking the same steps that these two institutions are taking. Um, so part of it is just, I think, I think a question of priorities uh, of, of for, for other institutions to prioritize uh, providing an excellent affordable education, especially to, to low income and first generation students. Um, that is just not the mission of every institution of higher education. And I, I think the more that that higher education sees that, sees social mobility as its real critical mission, um, the better the the better the country will function, but also I think that the, 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 the reputation of higher education will improve as well. Um, to get more granular and get more specific, I do think that there are, there are things that institutions can do uh, both uh, to, to communicate better um, about affordability, but also about benefits. So when you talk to families, when you talk to families of students uh, who are applying, who have been admitted, they find the question of the cost of college to be really difficult to understand even after they've been admitted. Um, there was a, 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 a there were a couple of studies done a few years ago of aid letters showing that that the letter you get when you are admitted to a college that says here's what you're going to pay they are very hard for students and their families to understand and it's not the fault of students and their families. Um, there are institutions that make these letters as complicated and as uh, opaque as possible, um, you know, because uh, often because being more straightforward doesn't, doesn't, they don't feel like it benefits them. But in the big picture, it is a, I think it's a real mistake on the part of institutions. It is very important to, to uh, families that they understand exactly what they're gonna pay, not just in their first year, but what they're gonna pay going forward. Um, then the more complex calculation, I think, is on the other side, is communicating better to uh, to families what the financial benefits of attending a different institution are. Um, and so institutions themselves, it's, you know, you're, if you're an institution, you're going to you're going to paint a good picture of what what um, uh, fam what students will how students will benefit from uh, attending your institution. But I think we need, um, and there are some great um, proposals out there, I think we need uh, more national institutions, whether they're governmental or non-governmental, that are giving uh, families a really reliable indication that for students like them, if they attend this university, how likely are they to graduate? How likely are they to earn a good living um, a year after, five years after, 10 years after graduation? And even to get more granular, depending on which major they take, what kind of degree they do, uh, what the benefits are. And I think that that math is going to be very comp complex. And I think there's lots of ways that we could go wrong in making that more transparent. But that is a big demand from from students and families all over the country. They want to really understand because because higher education is such a complex marketplace. They want to understand if I choose this institution over this institution, uh, how will it likely benefit someone like me, depending on what I major? Well, thank you. And really, just listening to you, I'm reminded 10 years ago, you authored a piece in The New York Times called Who Gets to Go to College? And um, I remember that vividly. I was just beginning my work at Arupe College, and that very much influenced my work, that in your, your book, How Children Succeed. And, um, you know, your work, your research, your writing continues to influence our work at Come to Believe. So, so grateful for our ongoing friendship and partnership here. So thank you for that. 
I want to turn back now to Susan uh, Burns and to Jim Danko. Susan and Jim, right, you know, a lot of our viewers today will know that uh, Butler University and the University of Mount St. Vincent recently furthered your campus's commitments to affordability by announcing the launch of new two-year colleges replicating the, the Come to Believe model. And again, we're just so delighted to be working with you. It was a pleasure to work with you and your colleagues during our design grant program. And it continues to be a pleasure for us as you move into launch. So can you uh, both share a bit about what appealed to you about Come to Believe, about Come to Believe's work, about CTV? I'm happy to start. I, I do believe a conversation that we had, Father Caceres, is me saying to you, of course, we're going to do this because it is so in line with our mission and values as an institution committed to lifting the person and walking with the person as we imagine them um, in the new possibilities. Um, I was so very drawn. I actually was familiar with Arupe College before I came to the University of Mount St. Vincent and saw the incredible work that Arupe was doing and was thrilled to know that you were continuing that work with the Come to Believe Network. Because here at the University of Mount St. Vincent, even though we have opportunity programs for students, what this model does is, said, is saying, who doesn't have that opportunity? And how, to re how do we provide access to an excellent education for those who are not even seeing college as an opportunity for them. And so we wanted to, to really discern with you all the, can we do it? We know that it's important. We know that it aligns with our mission, but can we feasibly do it? And um, that process where we really spent the time asking the questions, I think was really important in the process. And we were further affirmed that this aligns so beautifully with the work that we already do. And I'm excited that these students coming in this next fall are gonna feel like they are a part of something that is bigger than themselves, that they didn't imagine the possibility before, that we are, we are able to enter them into our community. And so I am a big fan of Arube College, big fan of the Come to Believe Network and was thrilled to have the opportunity to consider it. Thanks very much, Susan. Uh, Jim, let me turn this over to you. Sure. Well, uh, as I mentioned, uh, we, we announced this concept of a $10,000 degree in 2019. So that's, geez, almost five years ago, right? If I'm doing my math. Um, so we, we did go down a number of paths. I know our College of Education is one example, was looking at ways to deliver a, a more uh, cost-efficient uh, education and, and with sensitivity to the outcomes and assuring that students get placed. I mean, Paul raised that point and, and we do, uh, we do talk quite a bit about our success uh, rate and the 90% of our students roughly uh, receiving a degree and and we our career outcomes are outstanding in terms of the percentage of our students that end up uh, to go on to get employed pretty quickly after their education. And we've got uh, longitudinal data that shows that they go on for very successful lives and careers. So as we were going down these paths, looking to make sure we sustain that uh, success that we've had, um, a number of paths were taken and some not chosen, but it became evident. So we already had some of this work in our background before we were introduced to the Come to Believe Network. And so much of it aligned with the way we were thinking about this. At the end of the day, it's important that universities take on the responsibility to help solve the problems that are happening in society today. And we need an educated society. It's critical to the success of this country and the world moving forward. So there's this obliga obligation to educate that that we recognize and that that we need to uh, we need to embrace. You know that challenge, right? Um, and despite the 
the issues of the cost of delivering an education. Uh, uh, you know, if, if we don't, you know, control our own destiny, somebody else will. And by that, I mean, whether they're for-profit colleges or others that are going to use technology and other methods to deliver an education in a more cost-effective way, th those are real, real challenges. So we needed to, to embrace this. Um, I should also uh, admit that I was, uh, uh, educated by Jesuits in high school and college. So I had a little bit of a bias there. And I should also point out that Butler is not a Catholic institution, unlike uh, uh, Loyola and, and others that are involved in this. Um, so, uh, but there's very much an alignment of mission and an understanding of what we need to do to democratize education. If I pick up on the wor uh, words that Paul expressed earlier, we were very impressed with your outcome measures, your success rates, the fact that you know the highest per high percentage of students start the program and finish with an associate degree with some 70 or 80 percent then go on to a, a four-year degree those are the types of outcomes we want to see it's it's frustrating to know that in the you know if you look broadly across the country with community college education it's a great niche but the number of students succeeding is really low. And, and your numbers, the numbers that come to believe are consistent with what we expect at Butler and, and the level of service that we need to provide to those students to make sure that they succeed and they have the support network in place. Um, that's That fits in with our DNA, so to speak. So uh, great alignment there. And we're really excited for that first class of 100 students to start next year. Terrific. Thanks for that, uh, Jim. Susan, let's go back to you and let's return to this notion that Paul raised earlier this hour about return on investment and ROI. Um, so, you know, the ROI of a college degree often depends on the actual degree that's earned. So, you know, you're building uh, Seton College now. What academic pathways are you incorporating at Seton? And how did ROI influence um, the, the selecting these, these different academic pathways? Yeah, I, I think it's a really important question because especially with the, the students population that we already serve, that's one of the main questions that our students and their families are asking is, do you have the degree I need to get a good job to change my trajectory moving forward? And so for our associate's degree, part of what is really essential to the offering of the associate's degree is that our students are going to take the same expected high level of quality of core curriculum that our four-year institution students are taking that really helps them get access to the skills, knowledge, and abilities that our employers are looking for. So can they critically think? Can they communicate effectively? Can they work in teams? Can they understand other, that broadly defined other? And so we wanted to make sure that we continued that success in the associate degree program, but we also wanted to give them the opportunity to start on a path towards career in the pathways with their offerings to them. So we are offering them a business path within the associate's degree. We're offering a social sciences path within the associate's degree and, and a pre-health track, which is I think really important too. Um, the University of Mount St. Vincent is very well known for our success in nursing. And so to have those students at Seton College imagine the possibility of becoming future nurses is really important for us as well. In addition to the associate degrees that and the pathways that we've created for them, I am so pleased to say that, um, again, we continue to ask the question of value added. And so we have developed a partnership with Coursera to, to give the opportunity 
the expectation really for all of these Seton College students to, in addition to their associate's degree, they'll complete a certificate. They'll have a wide array of certificates that they can choose from, but really looking to that, okay, if you're stopping at the associate's degree, what's your plan for marketability, employability, and so forth? So they might do a business path associate's degree that has a certificate in project management. Mm -hmm. That value added by doing that certificate really is, is looking at the return on investment. And I would say as well, the way that we're designing, again, very much in the come to believe model is that these students are not taking debt. The investment that they're making is their time, which is significant, their time, their energy, their family's willingness to support them in that process. There's a huge investment that they're making, but they're not taking debt and doing it. So there's a huge return on investment. Um, when we look at the, the pathways we're creating, the certificate opportunities, and the ways in which we're going to, again, help them in persisting toward that degree completion. Susan, thanks for highlighting um, one of our core values, our North Stars, if you will, at the CTB, and that is, you know, students completing their degrees on time with little to no debt. I mean, that is our, our key commitment. All right, Jim, back to you. Um, so a key player in bringing the Come to Believe model to Butler was um, your innovation lab, and that's led by the great Stephanie Henshaw. Can you tell us about how the innovation lab came to be and how you see it as part of or contributing to Butler's success moving forward. Sure. Well, you know, another thing that happened, uh, I mentioned speaking in 2019, it was another significant year, I would say, in Butler's history. And that earlier that year at a board of trustees retreat, um, we, we, after, you know, months and maybe a couple of years of discussions around how are we going to change the model, right? I mean, we all saw that the traditional model of education was heading toward disaster, rising cost of tuition, lowering, you know, the demographic cliff and all of those things coming together. So we had a, a number of very, uh, uh, intense and robust conversations with the board and with the leadership team about what are we going to do to change? And I think any of us in higher ed, uh, recognize the resistance to change there. Some of it is built in. It's not necessarily the fault of people, although again, you know, human beings tend to be a little change resistant and higher ed tends to very much uh, demonstrate that attribute, so to speak. And so our board, uh, we talked through a process by which we would set up a separate entity, so to speak, at Butler that would be free of the traditional constraints and the ways of thinking and all of that. So we would have a, a bit of the innovator, innovators, you know, you know, attitude toward toward uh, accepting accepting change and pursue new opportunities out of that uh, came what we call the transformation lab we wanted to set up a systematic approach for ideas to emerge from the community no matter where they might come it could come from faculty it could come from staff it could come from outside and have a process and a team in place that really could evaluate whether or not these things had viability if there would be reasonable return on investment in the long term and if it would make an impact in society if there was a need for certain programs. So we hired Stephanie uh, shortly after that. She's been amazing as you've uh, pointed out there. And she's got a team of people that are looking at various programs to get them on the track. And if they meet all the criteria, 
then we launch, right? And and we keep a close watch on that. We think about it to make sure they're delivering what we expect it to deliver. Uh, she was one that took the lead when she heard about Come to Believe. It's like, wait, you we're talking about this uh, new degree, maybe an associate degree. We're trying to expand the number of learners on our campus. That's a big part of our current thinking right now, recognizing the changes that are happening out there, ways that we could adapt, whether it's a need uh, by students or even a need by employers. So we, we've got a, it's, it's really led to a lot of open-mindedness, a lot of creativity. And the other thing that's really amazing is a lot of those obstacles to change institutionally have been lowered. We have some of our best people thinking of ideas right now are our traditional faculty. And I think sometimes faculty get a bad rap that they're the ones resisting the change. Yeah, there's some that are, but the vast majority care about students. They care about education and they've been the first to come forth with ideas and to help us run. And, and they've really embraced the uh, two-year associate degree model through uh, uh, guided by the come to believe model. Terrific, thank you for that. So both of you now, President Burns, President Danko, what else can be done to improve affordability and uh, ROI and percep per the perceptions of ROI within higher education? So one of the, the features that I love about the Come to Believe Network um, model as well that I'm excited for our uh, Seton College um, students is the employee partnerships. And I think that this happens at many college universities. I would, I would assume, I'm confident that it's happening at Butler as well as it's happening for our four-year students um, as well at University of Mount St. Vincent. Partnerships to, that lead to pathways to employability, I think is really important. And we don't necessarily talk about those that are happening while students are in school, that we're creating all kinds of internship opportunities, paid internship opportunities. We're creating opportunities for employability in that come to believe model that we recognize, especially this demographic of students who are entering into the program, they probably need to work. And so us being a partner in that process to find employee partners who want to have them recognized as students first, and work around their class schedules to understand that they, they need that support and success and wanna be partners with the university is really important. I think the return on investment as well that um, the institutions that really should answer that question are not us, quite honestly. We are returning on investment. We've got documented proof that we're returning on investment. We're changing the social mobility and lifting our students. I think institutions who are not making the institutional commitment to financial aid, 100% of our students receive uh, financial aid at our institution, institutional aid. We budget for this, we plan for this, and we wanna make sure students have access to that. And so helping families understand that that this affordable cost is an investment um, worthy that will change their lives is really important to me. Thank you. Yeah, I great points, uh, Susan, and and a lot of what you said are consistent with where we're at. Um, I get back to a point I made earlier, kind of control your own destiny or someone will else will. And I think part of that is even the perception of higher education. Um, we're not uh, unaware that there is a move afoot, frankly, to denigrate uh, various institutions in this country, whether it's media, whether it's higher education, whether it's churches or organizations, right? I mean, uh, I think uh, some of social media has played a role in that. Certainly our divisive politics has as well. So uh, we really have to make sure we are 
uh, getting the facts out there and 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 controlling our own narrative. The points that Paul raised are legitimate. I mean, and if you could do a quick web search and look at ROI and a degree, and you'll find a lot of uh, information out there that would affirm that it's a great investment in terms of uh, higher education. He points out that maybe it's a he, he's he's uh, kind of correlating us to a Las Vegas casino. I don't think I buy that argument. I think uh, far more students coming out of our institutions are doing uh, a great job. And and they and, and it's not just, ROI is not just how much you earn. ROI is having a good quality life. Uh, we participated in a poll a few years back, a, a Gallup poll that talked, that looked at uh, uh, alums over a longitudinal study and they found Quality of life was much improved because of education. So we've got that going for us. We do have to own uh, doing our best to be effective and efficient, and we have to embrace technology and, and a number of things. And by the way, it's an interesting thing. We, we need to embrace technology so we could uh, deliver our education more effectively. But by the way, that's an investment in a big IT staff and all the costs that go into education that sometimes makes it hard at the end of the day to, to not look at tuition as a way to cover those costs. But another thing that's become complicated in our world, again, Paul uh, alluded to it in terms of the complexity of the tuition model, which is baked into the cake. And I know some of us wish we could just be more transparent, like this is what you're gonna pay, but the reality of financial aid situations and government, the government role in that, um, it's not easy to say, hey, at the end of the day, the net cost is gonna be X, but it's far lower than the posted rate of, of tuition in some universities, private institutions, now it's up to 60, 65% lower than what people perceive the tuition is. So how do we get through some of those? There's a number of obstacles out there. We have to take ownership of it at the end of the day and do a much better job for our families and for our students. But we also have to recognize that we're providing a fantastic education and we are making people's lives better as a, as a result. And if we could find to do it in a lower way of the cost of education, all the better. Terrific. You know, we uh, have several people um, with us this morning who are very engaged in this conversation. And I see that uh, several questions have been posted. And so I wanna shift now to see if we can take some questions from um, our attendees. Thanks, Steve. And uh, thanks to Jim and Susan for being here. It's a, a real privilege to uh, hear your perspectives and really um, CTB is very proud to partner with both of you as just leaders in this space. Steve, uh, I think, you know, Carlos did a brief description at the beginning of Come to Believe, but we have some questions from the audience just about, you know, some background information for people that may not be so familiar. So could you do a quick sketch of kind of a brief history of CTB, where the, uh, which schools are currently uh, part of the network and where you see it going from here? Sure. I mean, the history begins with the founding of Arupe College at Loyola University of Chicago, uh, desire there to address some big problems. Uh, too many students from low wealth backgrounds were not completing their degrees. Too many students were racking up debt. Um, and we wanted to create uh, a two-year college that would address those issues, that would um, help students to feel like they were part of a community, they were belonging. And uh, we wanted to provide the wraparound support services that would promote those uh, their, their success. They were successful. We learned so much from them. Uh, Rupe enrolled his first class in 2015. I was uh, had the privilege of being the, the founding dean there. Shortly thereafter, at the University of St. Thomas in Minnesota, 
Um, they were very interested in our model of the president there at that time. Julie Sullivan was a trustee at Loyola. And so she learned about Arupe and soon it was replicated there at the Darty Family College at the University of St. Thomas. And again, great successes of, of, of retention, per persistence, graduation rates, um, matriculation in the four-year programs, graduation there. And again, uh, little to no debt. And so in 2019, uh, Accenture did um, a feasibility study on could this model be replicated nationally? And that's what led me to begin the Come to Believe Foundation and Network in 2020. Uh, Sam, when you came on board shortly thereafter, we, you created the design grant process, which is a feasibility study for universities to learn about the model, uh, to, to explore it before making a commitment. And we we're so um, delighted that uh, Butler and Matt St. Vincent were in our inaugural class of uh, the design grant cohort. And, um, you know, as we said earlier, Susan and her team are planning to enroll their first class this coming fall. And uh, Butler is enrolling their first class in the fall of 2025. We have several uh, institutions that we're working now in the current design grant uh, cohort. Again, the feasibility study to explore and learn about the model. Thanks, Steve. And there's a, a question I think that's very related um, and maybe that uh, most people wouldn't be top of mind for them, which is, this sounds like a great program. Uh, you know, Jim and Susan are leaders in the field. They've adopted it. But um, what are some barriers maybe to uh, colleges and universities that may have heard about CTB but might not have uh, taken up uh, the CTB model? So, uh, Susan, just as the, you know, from the perspective of a leader who heard about Come to Believe and, you know, had to think carefully about whether it was the right fit for Mount St. Vincent, can you tell us a little bit about that process and maybe what you think some barriers might be? Yeah, I think you need to start by institutionally asking the question of who do you serve currently? So one of the, the questions we really struggled with at the University of Mount St. Vincent is we do serve, again, uh, a high percentage of Pell eligible students. We do serve in opportunity programs currently. And so part of our discerning process was asking the question, are we already serving this population or are there students we're not capturing in our current opportunity programs that we can expand the service to? So who are you already serving? I think it's a really important question and could be a barrier for some students. I think on the flip side, um, when you ask that question of who are you serving currently, if you do not have students who are in this population currently, how do your institutional structures support the possibility or what will you need to dramatically do different as an institution to support these students um, in their success as well. And so I, I think really asking who you serve currently. The other very practical why we are able to start, part of the reason why we we're able to start in fall of 24 is we already were approved and accredited to offer an associate's degree. Now we had not been offering our associate's degree for a period of time. And so we're dusting it off. We are making it current. We're doing all of the things that we need to do to be ready to enter these students. But if your institution does not have the accreditation to offer an associate's degree, that's a process. And it's a process that the institution has to have the conversation of, do we wanna go down that path to offer this opportunity? And then the other I would say is that by the commitment of the affordability, so students take no or little debt, the institution has to ask the question of how is it funded? And so again, these students will have access to, for example, Pell and state aid and so forth, but we're providing 
breakfast and lunch for these students on the days that they're on campus at no cost to these students. That's not something that's paid for currently. And so asking the question of, can you find the right grant opportunities, the right donors who wanna be a part of that is really important as well. The final I would say is space, logistics of space. And so at Arupe, they have their own kind of separate space here at the University of Mount St. Vincent, we've got 70 acres right on the Hudson River, beautiful campus, but I don't have a separate building that I can just designate for. And we were able to beautifully identify and renovate space for these students to come in. And so I think those are very practical things, but I think that question of who do you serve and how are these students gonna belong? Because Paul talks about that in his book, how are they gonna belong, feel like they're part of um, the institution is really important as well. Absolutely, thanks, Susan. Uh, all right, so uh, Jim, I wanna zoom out a bit. We had an interesting question in the chat where someone raised the point that um, this idea of the purpose of higher education is social mobility, uh, you know, and there was a question raised that says, is that the purpose of uh, higher education or is it providing a quality education as, as kind of the North Star? And so I'm just curious as you think, you know, dating back to Butler's roots and, you know, you mentioned the democratization of, of higher ed, how you think about, uh, you know, balancing the need for social mobility as a goal versus quality education. Is there a trade-off between those two or do you see them as kind of uh, twin goals that can be achieved together? Yeah, that's, I mean, that's a great question and obviously a complex one, uh, you know, I, 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 we have seen over time, now I've been in higher ed since 1992, starting at University of Michigan, and, and uh, you know, when you think about the context of the cost of education and the loans family have to take on and so forth, there's been an increasing tension around ROI and that, you know, the purpose of an education is directly linked to getting getting jobs and and that that that's been an argument within the world of higher education for quite some time is this a is this for a vocation or is this for an education and and uh, many faculty at you know certainly the fine institutions that I've been at including Butler uh, would would argue at the end of the day we're we're not we're not linking our jobs to career outcomes you know um, although that tension point has certainly elevated uh, in in recent times so but it, it is it is a um, understandable question and one that given the cost of education we have to be mindful of how do we assure that a student investing that kind of money is going to have a, uh, a successful career that's providing a bit of attention too to institutions like Butler and others that value the liberal arts education and that foundation as as a product of that myself um you want to be able to go to college and maybe ponder the great thoughts and read the great books and and become an educated individual and ready to kind of adapt to society as it moves forward and the different needs. Um, and and so we don't we don't want to lose that. Um, so it it's uh, I guess the answer is it's the, the it's an and proposition. you you know, there's multiple uh, things that we want at the end of the day coming out of education, but the tension has certainly risen on that lately to, um, you know, to link it to, to careers and, and job outcomes and all of those things, right? Definitely, thanks, Jim. All right, so uh, Steve, we have a question and this relates to, uh, you know, something that Jim referenced early on, uh, which is that Butler is not a Catholic institution, although he has bias for the Jesuits. So there's a question in the chat here about the CTB model and the universal apostolic preferences. Uh, and so I wonder, uh, I've heard you speak on this before, so I'm wondering if you could just speak a little bit about how the Jesuit 
kind of approach to education and uh, faith in general kind of informs CTB's work? Sure. Uh, boy, they, to talk about the universal apostolic preferences from the Jesuits, that's very specific, uh, but happy to do so. Certainly, um, you know, uh, Father Arupe, the leader of the Jesuits, Superior General in the 60s, 70s, and, and 80s, uh, coined the phrase, you know, the purpose of, of Jesuit education is to create what we say now, people for and with others, um, you know, very much informed um, our work and continues to influence, um, uh, come to believe, I don't think that's only a Jesuit or a Catholic thing. I think that that is certainly uh, can be universalized. Uh, Pope Francis talking about accompanying, uh, certainly what we're seeing at Butler, what we're seeing at Mount St. Vincent is uh, what we've seen at uh, the Doherty Family College and at Arupe, accompanying students and being accompanied by them and learning from them. And so, you know, these um, apostolic preferences uh, coming from our current superior general, from Father Arturo Sosa, you know, uh, accompanying young people, uh, working with the marginalized, sharing Ignatian spirituality, um, and then concern for our common home, concern for uh, the environment. You know, I, <laughs> I convinced my superior, my provincial, to allow me to start the Come to Believe Foundation just because at that time at Arupe, we were doing all those things. I said, you know, uh, don't get used to this. It's rare that I'm always, that I'm entirely aligned with the superior general of the Society of Jesus. This is a moment in time here, but it worked. And um, boy, it's just, it's, it's a pleasure, again, to be working with Butler, with Mount St. Vincent. And, you know, it's also a pleasure to be influenced by them and their experiences and how they're adapting the model to their populations. And finally, you know, you'll find this, Susan and Jim, and you already know this from your, your current students and previous students, you're, you're going to be influenced and informed in your practices by the students who enroll in your, in your colleges. I mean, they're, they're, they'll, they'll really shape the culture. They'll build community um, and um, their priorities and preferences will really uh, influence the work of your faculty and staff. I mean, Carlos Martinez is an example of that, a graduate of Arupe class of 2017 such a leader here at CTB. And I can't tell you during my six years as dean how much I was changed and um, and influenced for the better by listening to and walking with our students at Arupe. All right, thanks, Steve. I think we have time for one more question. And I think there's one that I think really captures the spirit of CTB and also uh, Susan and Jim's approach to education as well. So the question is, uh, you know, a lot of institutions talk about being cost-effective and about offering a low-cost option. But unfortunately, a lot of those efficiencies come from providing less to students. And so when you streamline things and make things cheaper, a lot of times you're just scaling down the level of support. So I'm wondering, Steve, first, if you can just tell us a little bit about the, the wraparound services that the model provides, a quick sketch, and then maybe we could have Susan and Jim talk about one feature of the model or an element that they think, uh, you know, they're particularly excited to provide to students as they welcome um, these new classes to their their two-year colleges. So Steve, we can start with you and then uh, we'll go to Susan and Jim. Sure, uh, we require uh, an orientation in order to enroll. And during that orientation, students begin to build community. They meet their advisors, they meet their faculty, they meet their classmates. Uh, part of the orientation, of course, is spent on campus. So we found that, you know, a couple of weeks later, the first day of classes, 
weren't bedlam. I mean, students knew what they were doing. They had friends. They knew their professors. They knew where they were going. They knew how to commute. So that orientation really set the tone. Faculty members as advisors. So in so many institutions, the academic advisors are, are just overwhelmed. And uh, that's certainly true in community colleges as well as at four-year institutions. So uh, built into our model is that the academic advisor, the faculty members serve as academic advisors. They have a load of between 20 and no more than 25 advisees. And, um, you know, I used to say to the advisors, our theme song was nowhere to run, nowhere to hide. I mean, so they were very focused on, on, on their advisees. We anticipated a food insecurity. Susan mentioned this through the breakfast and lunch program, offering uh, breakfast and lunch every day. But there was also an opportunity to build community. We anticipated um, mental health needs. So built into the model is uh, social workers who, you know, really are normalized, are a member of the community. It's not a, a stigma to seek um, services from the social workers because you see them all the time. They're part of uh, the college community. Every student receives a laptop. During COVID, every student received a hotspot. Um, there are uh, em employer relations officers uh, to help students find jobs, which you know are so necessary for them to be successful during the course of their, their two years in, in the two-year college. Um, there are financial aid officers because the model is so dependent on every student receiving um, federal and state aid and because that is just so navigate, uh, so difficult to navigate, as Jim alluded to, and as Paul mentioned earlier in our program, there's uh, a graduate support coordinator to attract the students once uh, they complete at the two-year college, and there's also a, a college transfer counselor. So lots of support services, and really, this is what helps these students build community, experience community, and, and get across the finish line. Thanks, Steve. Susan? Yeah, what I loved about the model, and I, I love about what we're we're planning and building at, at Seton College at the University of Mount St. Vincent is the removal of all barriers. And we know that life happens. We know that there are family issues. We know that there are things that we cannot control or fix. And at the same time, the way that Father Steve um, and colleagues have built this model is really asking the questions or what are the things that derail students if they have the, the courage to step into a college classroom? if they can figure out the finances, all of those things that, that they took control of to get themselves there, what are the things that can derail them? And the come to believe model has said, let's take away those barriers. And really in a beautiful, um, nowhere to run, nowhere to hide, I would say intrusively holistic manner that says, you know what? We know that you're gonna worry about working. We've got, we've figured that out. We know that there are mental health challenges we got that figured out. We know that you're worried about your career. We've got that figured I mean, that that all of those things have been thought of before those students first step foot on campus is such a beautiful model. And I would say at the University of Mount St. Vincent, we do a lot of those things for our four-year students right now. And so we have systems and structures that look similar, but they're very different for these Seton College students because they have that team already developed specifically for them coming in. And so we're not stretching the resources of our current four-year students. We're adding to those um, those built, the resources dedicated specifically for Seton College. And so the removal of barriers just is so fantastic. Thanks, Susan. All right. And over to you, Jim, for our final thought. Well, I this is I think your question is a bit of a trap. I'm bringing I'm thinking about when I was a high school kid at St. Ignatius High School and 
I'm asked a question like you posed and I'd give some lame answer. And then the Jesuit priest like Father Steve kind of stands up and rattles off the 18 things that are, you know, uh, more more the answer as opposed to the suboptimal answer I may have given. So I, I that's a shout out to Father Steve for, uh, I think, identifying a number of things that that indeed are important to this program and that we as university leaders are trying to uh, make happen in re reality. And uh, briefly, I'll just say there, the, the big thing too that we have to think about is the, the number of stakeholders that have an interest in this program and wanted it to succeed. And most importantly, to make sure that these students coming to Butler University feel very much the same as any Butler student coming here. Uh, uh, unlike Susan, our, we've got about 20% or so of our students are Pell eligible, which means we have a number of students that are well off and doing fine but uh, we have to make sure that there is equivalency across these programs, uh, both with the way they feel as Butler students and how they feel when they leave Butler and go off into the world. So we're really, really excited about the program starting next year. Can't, can't wait to meet those 100 students that are going to make us all better. Thanks, Jim. And thanks, uh, thanks to you, to Susan, to Steve for facilitating and to our audience. Just some excellent questions, uh, high engagement and I know they, uh, I'm sure they felt this time was valuable as, as I know I did. Um, so with that, uh, we'll send you all back to the rest of your days. We will distribute a recording of the panel and we encourage you to spread the word. Uh, if you wanna learn more about Come to Believe, about Butler's to your college, about Seton College at Mount St. Vincent, please reach out to us uh, following the email and we look forward to staying in touch. Take care, everyone. Thanks very much. This has been another episode of Come to Believe, the podcast. If you enjoyed today's episode, give us a review. It really helps us to continue to grow the podcast. And if you want to learn more about Come to Believe, visit www.ctbnetwork.org. Thank you again for all your support. Until next time, keep believing.